0: Hello everyone and welcome to the third podcast in Upstream's Uplift series. I'm Prema Gurunathan, Managing Director of Upstream. Upstream is a partnership between Imperial College London and Hammersmith and Fulham Council. We are a product of a local industrial strategy jointly published by these two organisations and our work is driven by the belief that strong local networks, that is relationships between people in a geographical area, can facilitate collaboration, learning, and critically accelerate the growth of organizations and places themselves. Now, our vision is to turn Hammersmith and Fulham into a destination for ambitious science, tech, and creative organizations with a thriving ecosystem and with White City at the epicenter of an inclusive innovation district. Since 2018, we have connected, supported and shone a light on the science, tech and creative sectors. And with this in mind, the Uplift podcast brings together two organisations as we seek to break down barriers and make new connections. So whether it's a biotech startup and a creative agency, people based in the same building across the road or on opposite ends of what is a very long and thin borough. Uh, we're recording this early July, and by the time you hear it, you may, or you may not, or you may, or you may not, be back in your offices. So the podcast is dedicated to those of you who feel it's been a very long time since you experienced those delightful uplifting vignettes you'd gain from a chat in the lift or just eavesdropping on someone's conversation. So in anticipation of a return to the office, Uplift aims to mimic those lift rides and hopefully without the awkward silences. Um, I am delighted to have with us today Sam Carter, who is CEO of Fospa, and Gianluca Carrera, who is Chief Solutions Officer of Dunhumby. I'm going to introduce them and get down to business shortly. But what you need to know is that they've never met each other, either virtually or in person till till now, really. Uh, We'll start with Sam. So based in a scale space, White City, Phosphor, for which Sam is CEO, is a direct-to-consumer growth platform that enables marketers to make better decisions with their budgets using first-party data and data science modeling to give fair credit to the role every view, impression, and click plays in driving customer acquisition and retention. Uh, Sam joined Phosphor as its commercial director, and it's been, been its CEO since 2017. Uh, prior to that, he was a director at Groupon and started his life in advertising. Now, Sam studied Russian with international law, Italian and Croatian, and that's obviously a reason why I'm telling you this. Our second speaker will be putting Sam through his paces to see how much of his university Italian he has retained. And he is Gianluca Carrera, Chief Solutions Officer at Dunhamby. Dan Humby is a global leader in customer data science and works with retail brands from groceries to financial services. They are the original data science companies, how I'd like to talk about them. Gianluca is also a mentor at Techstars on the Technology Advisory Board of Brooks McDonald, an asset manager listed on the UK Stock Exchange. He's an investor including in an Italian e-commerce wine business and his 25-year career spans finance and tech including a time at Yahoo where he was VP for operational strategy Europe. Welcome Sam, welcome Gianluca. Um, We're going to start which is very much the basics and uh, could you tell us about the footprint of your organization in Hammersmith and Fulham in about two minutes starting with Gianluca. Uh,
1: Hi Prima and thank you for having me uh we our big office our biggest office is in brook is in brook green so ham is, in, ham is made in fullon where we have our headquarters uh we have a few hundred people there i think roughly around 700 and uh we are in that beautiful building right before the tennis court next to the tesco uh mega store uh, it's a beautiful building uh what do we do that so we have all the exacts uh role uh we have a big substantial part of products uh, we have uk sales and account management we have probably the second biggest development hub that we have we we have offices in about 20 countries across the globe uh, India is pretty big as well for us uh, we have a a big chunk of our science r d department and we have a substantial part of our capabilities uh, we have marketing, HR and comms. So I'd say is really the kind of pulsating brain of Dunhamby, uh, and so our core capabilities, product engineering and the exact are based there.
0: Great, Sam? Uh, yes,
2: yeah, so uh, we're, we're a little bit smaller than uh, Dunhambi. There's about, there's about 20, uh, 26, 27 of us. Um, and we're uh, spread across small presence in the US, small presence in India and, and our headquarters is um, and in London and in White City. So we've been actually in Hammersmith and Fulham uh, since our inception, starting out at uh, Hammersmith Broadway in a, in a building that used to be owned by Disney. It was always quite fun presenting data in the room that I imagined that the Lion King got its sort of first UK screening at. Um, then, then we went, moved up to the um, Translation Innovation Hub, part of the Imperial Campus in White City. And now, recently, have moved into uh, ScaleSpace, which is the joint venture between Imperial College uh, London and our investors, Blenheim Chalkop. Uh, so, whilst we've been remote for the uh, for the past eighteen months, we 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 really value the space that we're in here. We have fairly flexible arrangements, and there's an, an enormous amount of great space to use at ScaleSpace. Um, and it's it for us. It's a it's an opportunity not just for in team collaboration, but also the opportunity to meet and catch up with people in the, in the other innovative businesses uh, in a sort of a real center of gravity in uh, in White City.
0: Great, thank you, Sam. Thank you, Gianluca. Um, the first question is: You both obviously work for data businesses, very <laughs> different sizes. Uh, and I'd like to delve into a few aspects of this. Um, and Sam, first, I suppose the question is how should data be captured? And what are the key principles behind a, you know, for a lay person, I'd say a good capture?
2: <laughs> um, capt- capture already makes it seem a little bit sinister, doesn't it? But yes, that the um, uh, data, good data capture, good data collection. So, so it might sound sort of counterintuitive. Um, considering that our company is essentially a, a data product, you, you described it really well earlier. But we uh, we um, collect uh, cross-channel marketing data for our clients, and we deploy models that um, independently assess how effective each channel is at, at driving new customers. Um, and that's in a world where there's just most of our clients who are, as you said, sort of fast growth, direct-to-consumer e-commerce businesses. Um, uh like Huel, uh Pandraya, um, or box, um, and, and and many more, um, that one of the big challenges that they have is just um sort of really drowning in sort of huge volumes of uh of, of quite siloed data. And uh I it, it might as I said it might sound counterintuitive, but um I, I think that with the wrong attitude to data capture and analytics, it's it's very easy to get trapped and enslaved by, by your data. Um, you know, asking yourself questions like, you know, what's important, what's not, what should my KPIs be, what are the right KPIs, how often do I need to be looking at data, how often do I need to be taking action, how often do I need to be reporting, um, how many reports and dashboards do I need. So, uh, you know, that I, think, I think for anybody who does uh, any sort of significant interaction with data that this will probably feel quite familiar uh, but I'd say that the key principle to uh, for you know being a good data capture is to work out what's important to you first um, and then and then sort of work backwards to the data so that you're sort of focused on on only the really the data that that's um, important to you and is going to support you and then having it in an environment that enables a sort of a, a low friction way to access it um, so you've kind of got you decide what's important you 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 make sure you're, you're collecting that and you make sure you can access it I say that beyond this um like definitely worth like taking stock of the data that you might not have an immediate use case for but um but might kind of be a source of IP of you know your your sort of um intellectual property further down the line and you won't be able to recover it um you know we, we speak to a lot of businesses with uh, who are sort of um, remorseful about the fact that they uh, realized that they needed a data source too late, and they've had you know two three years of like uh, of, of, of opportunity to have collected a, a bunch of useful information that would help drive their business, and uh, and they feel like they're starting a bit flat footed. I'll give just a quick example before I pass over Jan Luker of that, just to bring it to life. One that jumps to mind is a, a retail client of ours. Made a, a decision right at the start of their um, existence to to make uh, to put a sort of a mandatory field on their um, sort of checkout uh, to ask customers where they heard about the business, um, and that, that's quite unusual. A lot of I'm sure everyone's kind of encountered one of those where did you hear about us fields, and some people sort of don't believe in it at all. Some people put it after the checkout so it doesn't interrupt the conversion flow. Others make it optional. Um, this, this business really optimized like the user experience of that data collection and, uh, and it just found that then when they did start to start asking themselves questions about you know where should we putting our marketing dollars and, and pounds uh, you know they just had a source of information that they could um, leverage that a lot of their competitors don't have like customers telling them where they heard about them which really helped inform their marketing strategy. Um, and gave them an advantage, um, you know, when it became a priority to start focusing on it. So it was a small example, but I, I quite, I like it because it's thinking ahead. It's like something that felt maybe um, at the time, like overkill when they were a very small business, but three years down the line, um, you know, was, was, was super helpful. So long-winded waves.
0: Thank you, Sam. Uh, Gianluca, what's, what's been your experience? And I suppose, you know, aspects of a, you know good good principles operating principles and perhaps an example where you know you've done really good work for a client and you know got it right
1: uh yeah we do only good work for clients so (laughs) Uh, no really we have about 80 clients across the globe and and we have been in operation for the last three years so just to pick an example it's very difficult but i'm going to do exactly that Uh, And I think probably the one that comes to mind is, uh, and I wouldn't use um, our local client and shareholder, which is Tesco, for which we do a lot of great work, and with pride have helped them through the pandemic in, for example, uh, identifying where to put the the most resources to respond, for example, to the spike in pickup. That was an example, right? So when the pandemic uh, struck. Uh, Tesco came to us and say we need to like triple or something like that the number of uh, delivery slots and pickup slots in our stores. Uh, but you know Tesco is a big company and they have thousands of stores. And where do you put all that capacity? Because if you put a thousand slots in uh, in the wrong store, those are wasted. And so they came to us. We worked together, understanding where was more likely the demand for in-store pickup or uh, delivery was going to materialize. And we went through a a bunch of models and we have them generate uh, double or triple the number of uh, pickups and delivery. That is something that if you think to what customer data science can do uh, to help people, that is a clear example, right? That is something that you can't miss right, Uh, without custom data science and the collaboration between Navy and Tesco, somebody would have not had their their grocer delivered at all, or or they should have, they would have been forced to to walk the aisle. So that is a very clear example. But another one probably uh, with uh, Kruger, uh, second biggest uh, uh, national retailer in US, It wasn't the second biggest before they started working with us, uh, we work for them with them for at least some, for like a dozen years. That predates me, so I can't claim any credit on that one. Uh, but our guys work with them extensively and convince them that when you put the customer at the center of the equation when you uh, when the customer is your no star uh, and when you really look at him improving his experience, making sure. Uh, he spent the least amount possible. He finds the right product on the shelves and so on and so forth. Then there's a good benefit for the company. And and so working with us, Kroger had something like 60 quarters of sequential growth. It was staggering and became the second biggest retailer in the U.S. And again, it's our job is really helping the retail and the CPG put the customer at the center. And the only way the customer can actually communicate his preferences or his disappointment is through the data, right? They put something in the basket and they scan it. And and you know, for many people that's nothing more than a say for us, that is a clear indication of intent. And if something is not in the basket, it's equally an indication of a lack of intent. And so you look at the data and you build model to try to listen to the customer, right? And be inspired by what they say with the reaction.
0: Thank you, Januka. I I was also wondering whether we could pick up, perhaps, on, um, you know, you've got got customers, and I suppose I'm a customer, and then the clients are the people, you know, who pay you to do your work. And we'll come to the question about how customers behave, but just clients, I mean, how much of a understanding do most, you know, people working in the companies you uh, do work for, what do your clients, what kind of understanding do they have of the work you do, how much education How much of a piece of education do you need to do and perhaps i'll start with Gianluca which is how has it changed in the time you have you know worked in the business
1: Uh, yeah it's changing dramatically right and uh, we have to bear in mind the retailers have been around for hundreds of years and they were doing the job pretty well so somebody must have come up with that assortment somebody must have come up with those prices right and if of course if you talk to them they do it the best possible way, right? There's no be- better way to do that, and, and then they work with us, and then they actually discover there's a better way to do that. But the type of improvement, just to tell you how competitive the, the grocery world is and how good the grocery people are, is that you take artificial intelligence, uh, logistic models, everything, and you throw terabyte of data at them, and we can improve their performance by two, three, four, five percent, not fifty, right? Two, three, four, five percent. Now because the retail award is a highly leveraged business, which means out of a hundred, they roughly have a margin around 20. So if you bring 4% more sales, that 20% more profit, that's a big number. Uh, And and so it takes a little bit of uh, bringing them on the journey to tell them, look, there's a different way, which is not just pure experience and customer exposure to put the right price on the shelves and, and get the right price and send the right message. And, and that has to do with collecting the data, taking a bunch of model, you know, uh, trained up by a bunch of statistician in London, and then spits out something, and, and it tells you you don't, you don't have to put that product on the shelf, you probably shouldn't, right? And that is when, you know, the rubber hits the road, We say no, that product sells. Well, it's just bringing a different perspective, right? So it's a, it's a big journey with a retailer, and you have some of them which are visionary, and totally embrace the customer first. Yes, I want to listen to the customer. I don't know how to listen to the customer because I can't talk to all of them. Well, they're already talking to you, right? With a wallet. So some of them are visionary, very much ready to embrace it. Some others feel the need, but they can't qualify it. And, and so it takes a little bit of teaching and then you start maybe with the POC and so on and so forth. What I've seen is that after a few conversations, a few examples, they have the wow moment. And then and then they start embracing it. But it's not just the model, right? At the end of the day, the retailer is also execution and delivery, right? We tell them, well, not we, but you know, our people, our model, tell them what to do. But then there's a big challenge. The retailer has to put that in practice. And that's not easy because it's a super complicated world, right? And so it's a fascinating journey, right? What we see is that at the end of that journey, and it's a continuous journey, right? It's a never-ending journey because... The customer may change their preferences, there's different trends and so on and so forth. So it's a never-ending store. But we see retailers with growing satisfaction, happiness, uh, better financial results. And the customer, you see them, they're stickier, they're happier, they're more engaging. And and at the end of the week, you probably save them a few bucks or a few pounds, right? So the the cost of of the shopping cart is lower. And that's a good thing. Right, because then the retailer can reinvest in other experiences and so on and so forth. So I think it's a is a virtual cycle, uh, circle
0: Thank you, John. Sam.
2: So- yeah, um, I think probably I'd start by just reinforcing what John said. I think that my that my immediate um thought when you asked the question was um Amazon and probably thinking about what that Jan is um answer to the question before so i mean i think in terms of people's attitude to uh, data and um uh, thinking about how they use their customer data i think like the example of amazon not particularly a new case study but, but like kind of the north star on um, customer obsession and at the kind of scale that they're at the only way that they're really able to listen to their customer and to keep that kind of customer obsession is through um like you know top level um, uh, um, data analysis and understanding of their customer through their data um, so like I guess like you, you you know you probably have in the time that I've been doing this um, a, a shift from I suppose people who are like maybe like gut um, uh, like operators so they just kind of do what they, they thought was right and they're probably a little bit like reluctant to use data and and' the kind of I suppose like um, uh, an acceptance and an embrace. Um, of data when they look at the businesses that are sort of ruling the roost um, and how they use data to to understand and improve their customers experience so I think like that's definitely like number one I think like the, the obvious other one is like um, attitudes changing in the face of um, changing regulations and, and privacy changes so um, you know I think like what we probably I saw maybe, saying like sort of Initially, you sort of when that sort of stuff, um, you know, Cambridge Analytica broke, um, GDPR the let uh, this legislation in California, CCPA, most recently, um, Apple sort of limiting what Facebook can track, um, with our iOS 14 updates. Uh, I think, like, there's probably always initially a resistance, um, so like, customers, uh, sorry, our, our clients, you know, in I think the broader world, that there was a, probably an obsession, particularly in marketing, with. Um, really sort of um, getting as much customer user level data as possible. And like, that was the goal. It was like, and when clients would talk to us, it would be like, how, how good is your ability to track people across the internet? And, and, and actually I think probably in the last year or so, particularly um, like, it's kind of, we've gone past the uh, sort of resistance to an, into sort of acceptance that uh, actually, you know, that, that way, the writings on the wall for like the amount of sort of user level data that you can expect to use and access particularly third party um like probably surprising it took this long but i think w- what we're also finding is that that's occurring at a time where the opportunities that machine learning and ai present to like not need to follow people across the internet to 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 to, 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 to find to understand your customer because of um, the opportunities um uh, that, yeah, that that, that that sort of modern AI and machine learning techniques um, offer. Um, so there's kind of an inflection point where I, I think we're probably finding that there was resistance to that. So like AI and machine learning as a kind of a dark arts um, and needing to track a customer everywhere was the norm. And now it's probably inverted. And that, that's a good thing from our perspective, I think, as Tim Cook, the Apple CEO, uh, summed it up really nicely when he said, you know, um, Technology businesses thrived for centuries um, uh, without vast troves of personal data, and uh, uh, you know we didn't need to do this. We didn't need to follow people across the internet, um, and you know the path of least resistance was, as it turned out, the sort of path of least wisdom. And I think uh, that's that's an attitude that we're starting to see reflected in our clients and, uh, and 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 sort of peers that we speak with.
0: Got it. Thanks, Sam. So I think really you are, you know, you're moving with the trend. Your customers. I mean, your clients have seen what's out there, and you're being a bit more sensitive to it. Gianluca, I was just wondering, you know, the debate we're having around you know big tech. I mean, Amazon is mentioned in glowingly in some senses, and in some other senses, it is, you know, the big evil because it's stealing all our data, etc. Uh, it's just wondering what you know how how is your business? Uh, changing in response to the debate around big tech and privacy? And I think what Sam's alluded to down there is, you know, we've got AI, we've got machine learning, we're not going to have to be so intrusive as we used to be. What are your thoughts?
1: So, I think we were kind of lucky, uh, or we've been lucky, because we've been dealing with uh, uh, PII's and transactional data since we we came to life about three years ago. So we made respecting uh, regulation uh, a, a key USP for us, right? So uh, of course, GDPR uh, or the privacy and security regulation are fundamental. And I think the world is moving in a direction. And that will become a key competitive advantage. Uh, well, when you talk about data, you talk about people's freedom, right? And so that it is absolutely important that we safeguard them. Uh, so it's building your technology with privacy and security by designing default. Uh, uh, That requires substantial expertise and, frankly, also substantial cost. Right? You know, privacy and security doesn't come for free. Uh, To some extent, that will be a little bit of a, a Darwinian selection within the industry. Right? And the and the, of course, you know, the grocery store require absolute privacy, protection, and security because you know they are exposed. And so, the number of not professionally qualified players in the space is reducing. Another thing is around how you maintain the data. And there's also uh, some consideration around uh, the data footprint, right? Um, So there's a data proliferation, but reality is the more data you gather, the more exposed you are to regulation and to hacking and to data leakage. So there's a lot of thinking at Anhambi that goes into how do we maintain the smallest data footprint to do our job. So how do we discharge the data we do not need, for example? And how do we maintain it? How do we, how, how we do all data administration? And how about persistent data, right? And, you know, you, you wouldn't want to have persistent data or not too much, so to speak, right? Because, you know, when a piece of data is sitting there, it can only be discovered and unheard at a later moment. And finally is when you use the data, how do you use, for example, on the fly, Data manipulation technology to reduce the footprint of persistent data. So if you come there, if you come around and I need to somehow qualify you with some attributes, I can do it two ways, right? I can do it offline, so to speak, and then have a persistent marker on you, which is in the database. And God forbid somebody can hack into anybody's database, right? They, they hack the White House, the Pentagon, and the NSA. Uh, the, the NSA. Right? If that persistent, piece, if that piece of data is persistent, is there? It can be discovered. But if you then you, you look at attribute creation on the fly, so you only create the attributes you need when you need that, and then you discharge them, then you are safeguarding the privacy abuse. So all these things are things that are, are not necessarily mainstream today. Uh, it's stuff we deal with, uh, and they will become important, and they will become mainstream, because that's a way to protect the privacy of people, right? and to make it more complicated and difficult to anybody that might have access to some piece of information to see the whole picture right if all they see is an identifier and a piece of uh meaningless marker but they don't have the algorithms to generate the attributes on the fly they didn't know nothing about you so the whole thing around data privacy and how to protect privacy of people is evolving substantially and it will carry on evolving
0: I'm going to move on to our next, to what we're talking about next, which is entrepreneurialism. And Gianluca, you are a mentor at Techstars, you know, sit on an advisory board of an asset manager that invests in tech. Uh, You've invested in several startups yourself and worked for at least one, I think. You also worked for Yahoo in its, you know, heyday in the noughties. And I suppose my question is, what is the biggest challenge, you know, you see on, entrepreneurs facing and what are the key qualities that a CEO you think needs to possess?
1: Uh, it's one of those questions that you could be talking for a couple of days and, and you could actually take two people. So am I, um, yeah, you can actually ask the same question to two people. And then we've we'll talking for two days and probably not saying the same thing. Uh, I, I think a couple of things are going to be a challenge for or are a challenge for, for the startup. The first one I think is attracting talent. That is probably the biggest challenge. There's a lot of competition out there. There's a lot of big, great companies which are looking for the same talent that the startups are looking for, right? It's difficult to resist to a Google or to an Apple or to Microsoft or to a Dan Humvee, uh, when you're a startup. So there's, that is a challenge, right? And, but you know, for whatever reason, Uh, a bunch of people that happen to bump into each other and have the same uh, ambition, aspiration, they're good enough, get together and they they start a company. And then the problem starts in, you know, who do we bring on board, right? And that is about the values, the competencies and everything. And the values are are extremely important at the beginning because it's a very tight space and you're shoulder to shoulder and you need to like each other. So the world of talent, I think, is going to be a challenge for for the soft tops. The second one I think is more forward-looking and is the choice of partnerships. And uh, so there's a, there's a massive shift which is happening pretty much in every industry at every level. And that is the partnership-driven uh, approach to doing business. Uh, even the biggest company like Microsoft, for example, have realized that there's so many things out there to do that you can't do them all. And so instead of trying to do everything, try to do many things through partners and kind of divide and conquer, so to speak. So we have an amazing partnership with Microsoft, for example, which helped us on the cloud to reach many more customers than we could. So partnership around technology, around distribution, around ideation, around th- that is really what I think is the big change that has been happening over the last year and will become even more important. With the technology becoming more complicated and simpler at the same time, but also the domain and, and, and the estate widening so much, the startup needs to be clear who will they work with, where their core competence will be, and who will augment their ability to go to market or to produce the products and so on and so forth. They have to stop thinking they can do it all themselves, and they have to start picking the right partners that can accelerate that growth over time. So uh, that is another challenge.
0: Sam, what's uh- well, do you agree? What's your experience been, particularly as CEO? Yeah, you,
2: yeah. You can you can test um, how because I, I wrote a couple of notes down and and actually was quite remarkably similar to Jan Luca in various respects. Which considering you said twice, Jan that like we, we a we debate this for days and B that uh, two are alike. I think we I actually landed on something relatively cinema- similar. I'll start with the talent thing because I think that was a a really interesting point. Um, uh, it's, definitely, it's, it's really interesting, actually. As you were saying it, Gianluca, I was thinking, I'm sure it was only like three years ago where we were talking about like a skill shortage in tech, and now it's like the battle for talent. So it's been a productive few years. But I totally agree. I think the last 18 months has really compounded the, the, the problem because everyone's working from home. Your environment becomes like, you know, cr- across industry, across Everything a little bit more homogenous because you sort of everyone's waking up and walking 50 yards, like or 50 feet, sorry, to their uh, to the desk. Yeah, 50 yards would be uh, uh, all right for some. Um, so, um, so like actually, a lot of people probably sitting at home going like, what you know, what does it all mean? Like, you don't get that kind of natural variety and sort of energy that you get when you're around people. Um, and uh and so I definitely think like the way that we think of it is like you know, it's the three things that people will prioritize, like comp and bends, and that's where it like you know, benefits, which are always gonna be difficult to compete with Google and Facebook, as you said, Jan Luca. Uh, purpose, like you know, what the purpose of your business and is that a motivating factor? And the third one's learning and, uh, and that's, well that's where i the overlap with Jan Luca on um how we think about um I suppose what what we think about making good entrepreneurs here, but um it's the also the thing that we can offer people um a learning experience. And that's kind of a kind of currency that we see as one of the key sort of ingredients to talent attraction you know we're not necessarily going to um win on comp and benefits versus google and facebook we're not necessarily going to win on, on purpose versus like the world wildlife fund um but like but but you know learning we think we can be competitive on so that that, that that's how we think of of that and then i think like just to, to john lucas point I think that directly translates to the um, yeah I'll probably f- say the key qualities of anyone working in an entrepreneurial environment um, uh, not 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 limited to the CEO but probably kind of like amplified for the CEO um, I I, re- I summarized it very similarly actually so um, number one gross mindset willingness to learn um, and, and a willingness and ability to assimilate and react to new information and data I think that's like it's what we like um, should start, try and measure myself on and uh, and, and measure our 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 team and hires on coming. The fear of failure and the embarrassment of failure is pretty like pretty critical in entrepreneurship. I don't think I've 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 got there yet, but um getting a little bit harder around the edges of each failure. <laughs> uh, and the like another one is like be, being comfortable with ambiguity. I think like um so you know in in smaller entrepreneurial um uh, businesses and roles you don't necessarily have as much information and data to know everything. So being really comfortable with not knowing everything is um, is kind of kind of key. Um, and then I think that all of those things, as well as being amplified for for a CEO, also amplified for being in tech, um, where the pace of change um, creates opportunity. You know, new tools, new technologies, but also risk. The regulatory changes uh, that we've talked about, you know, constantly moving goalposts, um, uh, it creates risk and opportunity in equal measure. So I think like. Um, yeah, I think that probably is. Uh, I think there's a decent amount of overlap with what Gianluca said. I'm sure we could carry on debating for a couple of days.
0: I think there was more than Gianluca was expecting, so that that's uh, probably a good sign. Although you probably, maybe you should both be more questioning of each other. I'm moving on to the question about networks, and you know I said at the start, upstream is founded on the belief that stronger networks mean organisations and people do better, and. Our vision is to have Hammersmith you know to have an inclusive thriving ecosystem of ambitious science tech and creative industry organizations with White City at you know the kind of a global global beacon of growth uh, the White City Innovation District in particular and so my questions are how have you benefited from networks in your own lives and if we want to build an exciting and innovative and I think I would also emphasize an inclusive borough what other steps do you see as key in building networks i was wondering whether sam might like to go first
2: uh uh, cool yeah i'll I'll, well uh, how have i benefited um from networks in my own life Uh, enormously and you realize just how much when you're stuck exclusively working from home for the past 18 months or uh, or a, a a decent chunk of it um we feel and i feel extremely lucky to be part of um Blenheim Charcot and its portfolio of tech sort of startups and scale-ups, as well as now part of the broader community with Imperial College um, in, at Scalespace in White City. Um, and, you know, after being starved of, uh, of of chance encounters and water cooler conversations, the extra energy you get from those and those random collisions with people, um, and old old uh, um, colleagues, old acquaintances, you know, people in your network is is, is quite profound, and uh, it's actually not just us. In fact, we, we over the past twelve months, um, we we observed that amongst our client, which is a sort of a um, you know, our clients are sort of marketing leaders in direct consumer businesses. We, we were hearing so often that they were just starved of network development opportunities that we actually sort of decided to do build one ourselves for them. So we sort of created a little sort of direct consumer. Uh, marketing, um, network and do random pairings each month. So it's not, you know, I, I, I felt the value of the network. We've seen it in the client base and on a practical level, of course, our networks have been responsible for generating our first customers, you know, job opportunities and much, much more. So, um, hugely valuable. And, and, it, and on the sort of the point of, um, if we want an exciting, innovative and inclusive borough, what do we think, um, we need to do? What, well, um, i i guess like innovative ways to get people mingling um and promote those random encounters um uh you know i think fundamentally um like that's what a lot of networking is and that's sort of maybe a little bit sort of contrary to um what we've been living through with the pandemic um uh yeah, but we need to we need to find a way of doing that that gets around people's fears of like leaving the house like i probably place like networking events like for me and i'm i'm probably reasonably um extrovert um but uh i'd probably place networking events in general broadly right at the top of the most stressful sort of work encounters right you know like uh yay yeah, you, you know you you you, you know, it's like it's a little bit like the first dance at a school disco and you go to these sort of things um and and so so you know for for introverts who haven't been practicing for the past 18 months um you know it's going to be doubly stressful so i think like um you know, it's a, it's a big challenge, but how, how you, in the short term, you think about that um, uh, is def- definitely sort of key to um, uh, developing the network in, in Hampshire and Fulham. And I think the final thing is just, I mentioned scale space. It, it, it's just so useful to have something as a sort of a natural center of gravity. Um, and uh, having places in the borough that just have a natural pull um, is, I, I imagine, going to be hugely helpful um, uh, and that's certainly that's what scale space is for us. It just feels a bit like a sort of a network creator. Right
0: Great. Thank you, Sam. John Luca. Sam
1: clearly is a network professional. Uh, I'm I'm definitely not uh, a, net, a superstar networker. Uh, so I'm for smaller and deeper network than wider and shallow. That's my natural tendency. Uh, nevertheless, have to say, network networks of paramount importance, right? And to some people, investing in network comes at a high price, right? And because you know, just you, you have to curate the network, you need to you need to invest in the network and so on and so forth. Some people like me spend you know like to spend time seeing in different things, uh, you know, with select a few people talking about products or market strategy or, or the occasional uh, uh, uk Ukrainian for zero, uh, but. Uh, by the way, congratulations on that one. We're going to see you in final. Uh, but networks are of, are of paramount importance. And, and again, it's not just a structure thing. It's also giving people a space and opportunity to bump into each other. Uh, I I cannot tell you how many times just bumping into somebody and sharing a few words then something big came out of that. Whether that was in the company or out of the company, of course, in the companies, it's simpler, right? Because you have shared interest, shared passion. So having something like you know, how has been in full and then try to create a, a center of gravity for shared interest and passion. Uh, that is important. As long as you keep it alive, you keep it you know pulsating, and and people naturally gravitate in that area, uh, and then you know, great things will happen. So again, do more of the same and um, you know stuff like, for example, I don't know, startup fairs or. Or, you know, some, you know, great ideas presentation, uh, stuff that can uh, trigger people interest and then come into a casual environment, Uh, low effort, casual environment, right, people hate high effort, uh, formal environments, especially in technology, uh, where anything goes, so to speak, right, there's no expectation or anything like that. And really, you know, some of the best ideas came out of from conversation with no expectation, no purpose, right, it's so. It's very difficult to industrialize uh, creativity through that goal, right? You just have to create the occasion and then keep your fingers crossed. And then if nothing happens, then change the ingredients a little bit and you know keep your finger crossed again. Uh, but you know, as long as you put enough good people, smart people in the same place and give them freedom to talk, something great will happen.
0: Thank you. I think I think the word is serendipity. Um, and against that, you've got very, you know, as you said, industrialize. It's kind of two different sides of it. I'm going to ask. We kind of this is a penultimate question before the word association round, which I always enjoy more than the guest. Um, So penultimate question is: How much did you know about each other's organizations at the start of this podcast, and what have you each learned from this session? And I was wondering if I go to Gianluca first.
1: I I learned that Sam is a natural networker. Uh, I I, of course, you know, browse your your website uh, early on. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's a smart idea as a great company. And uh, the CEO behind the company is exactly what I was expecting for a company that is presenting itself in such a great way. So that's what I learned. Uh, so a great person behind a great
2: company. Well, that was very kind. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I, I actually already knew about your incredibly beautiful office as well. You, you mentioned it twice right up at the start, but I cycled past it. Um, and I know, I know I, I obviously, you know, know Dunhamby um uh, um pretty well being in data space and also uh you guys were responsible for the club card which is a product that i was very familiar with from uh from my days working the checkouts at tesco one of my first jobs so um i was i was helping you uh, collect uh, customer data before you knew it um but it's been really good you actually you, you described me as an expert on data and said you uh, sorry on networks and then and then said you weren't and then gave a much more eloquent answer than i did so uh, I think I would just also say I learned that you were uh, much more humble than you need to be. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I'm, I'm, I, I, uh, I enjoyed hearing uh, more about what you guys are up to and uh, and I followed you from afar, and I'm pleased to be uh, hearing it a little bit closer. I do think that you were what very brave to announce just uh, three hours before kickoff that uh, Italy and England were going to meet in the final. We should uh, we should remind the the listeners that we're this is the Tuesday just before it all goes off in the semi. So. Uh, Gianluca will either look massively uh, wise or... Uh... And of course, we'll agree
1: we're going to cut the part about the final if we don't win the game. Right? <laughs> Otherwise, I'll, I'll be blamed.
0: <laughs> okay, word association round. Now, how this works is I say one word and you each say the first thing that comes to mind when you hear it. Data.
2: Analytics. Love it. Football. It's coming home.
0: That's three words, Gianluca. Final. <laughs> Entrepreneurs.
1: Challenging crazy
0: so thank you to our two guests Sam and Gianluca today uh, for their time and uh, for shedding a bit of light into what they're working on um, the excitement in their lives and their views on everything from entrepreneurship to data very cheerful topics and obviously they are both um, going to be watching the football tonight and we will see what happens at the end of this Sam Gianluca thank you so much for your time I hope you both enjoy the podcast when it comes out. What other steps do you see as key in building networks? I was wondering whether Sam might like to go first.
2: Uh, uh, cool. Yeah. Uh, I'll. Well, uh, how have I benefited um, from networks in my own life? Uh, and enormously. And you realize just how much when you're stuck exclusively working from home for the past eighteen months, or uh, or a, a, a decent chunk of it. Um, we feel, and I feel extremely lucky to be part of. Um, Blenheim Charcot and its portfolio of tech sort of startups and scale-ups as well as now part of the broader community with Imperial College um, in, at Scalespace in White City um, and you know after being starved of, uh, of of chance encounters and water cooler conversations the extra energy you get from those and those random collision with people um, and old old uh, um, colleagues old acquaintances you know people in your network is, is, is quite profound and uh, it's, it's actually not just us. In fact, we, we over the past twelve months um, we, we observed amongst our client, which is a sort of a um, you know our clients are sort of marketing leaders in direct to consumer businesses. We, we were hearing so often that they were just starved of network development opportunities that we actually sort of decided to do build one ourselves for them. So we sort of created a little sort of direct to consumer. Uh, marketing, um, network and do random pairings each month. So it's not, you know, I, I, I felt the value of the network. We've seen it in the client base and on a practical level, of course, our networks have been responsible for generating our first customers, you know, job opportunities and much, much more. So, um, hugely valuable. And, and, it, and on the sort of the point of, um, if we want an exciting, innovative and inclusive borough, what do we think, um, we need to do what, well, um, i i guess like innovative ways to get people mingling um and promote those random encounters um uh you know i think fundamentally um like that's what a lot of networking is and that's sort of maybe a little bit sort of contrary to um what we've been living through with the pandemic um uh yeah but we need to we need to find a way of doing that that gets around people's fears of like leaving the house like i probably place like networking events like for me and i'm i'm probably reasonably um extrovert um but uh i'd probably place networking events in general broadly right at the top of the most stressful sort of work encounters right you know like uh yay yeah, you, you know you you you, you know, it's like it's a little bit like the first dance at a school disco and you go to these sort of things um and and so so you know for for introverts who haven't been practicing for the past 18 months um you know it's going to be doubly stressful so i think like um you know, it's a, it's a big challenge, but how, how you, in the short term, you think about that um, uh, is def- definitely sort of key to um, uh, developing the network in, in Hampshire and Fulham. And I think the final thing is just, I mentioned scale space. It, it, it's just so useful to have something as a sort of a natural center of gravity. Um, and uh, having places in the borough that just have a natural pull um, is, I, I imagine, going to be hugely helpful. Um, Uh, And that's certainly, that's what scale space is for us. It just feels a bit like a sort of a network creator, right?
0: Great, thank you, Sam. John Luca.
1: Sam clearly is a network professional. Uh, I'm I'm definitely not uh, a a superstar networker. Uh, So I'm for smaller and deeper network than wider and shallow. That's my natural tendency. Uh, nevertheless, have to say, network networks of paramount importance, right? And to some people, investing in network comes at a high price, right? And because you know, just you, you have to curate the network, you need to you need to invest in the network and so on and so forth. Some people like me spend you know like to spend time seeing in different things, uh, you know, with select a few people talking about products or market strategy or, or the occasional uh, uh, UK-Ukraine for zero, uh, but uh by the way congratulations on that one we're gonna see you in final Uh, but networks are of of paramount importance and and again it's not just a structure thing it's also giving people a space and opportunity to bump into each other Uh, i i cannot tell you how many times just bumping into somebody and sharing a few words then something big came out of that whether that was in the company or out of the company of course, in the companies, it's simpler, right? Because you have shared interest, shared passion. So having something like, you know, how much full and try to create a, a center of gravity for shared interest and passion, uh, that is important. As long as you keep it alive, you keep it, you know, pulsating and, and people naturally gravitate in that area. And, and then, you know, great things will happen. Uh, so again, do more of the same, on, you know, stuff like, for example, I don't know, startup fairs or or, you know, some, you know, great ideas, presentation, uh, stuff that can uh, trigger people's interest and then come into a casual environment, Uh, low effort, casual environment, right? People hate high effort, uh, formal environments, especially in technology, uh, where anything goes, so to speak, right? There's no expectation or anything like that. And really, you know, some of the best ideas came out of from conversation with no expectation, no purpose, right? It's, so... It's very difficult to industrialize uh, creativity through that, tool, right? You just have to create the occasion and then keep your fingers crossed, and then if nothing happens, then change the ingredients a little bit, and you know, keep your finger crossed again. Uh, but you know as long as you put enough good people, smart people in the same place and give them freedom to talk, something great will happen.
0: Thank you. I think I think the word is serendipity, um, and against that you've got very, you know, as you said, industrialised. It's kind of two different sides of it. I'm going to ask. We kind of uh, this is a penultimate question before the word association round, which I always enjoy more than the guest. Um, so p- penultimate question is: How much did you know about each other's organisations at the start of this podcast, and what have you each learned from this session? And I was wondering if I go to Gianluca first.
1: I learned that Sam is a natural networker. Uh, I, I, of course, you know, I browse your, your website uh, early on. And uh, and it's, you know, it's a smart idea, it's a great company. And uh, the CEO behind the company is exactly what I was expecting for a company that is presenting itself in such a great way. So that's what I learned. Uh, so a great person behind a great company.
2: Well, that, that was very kind. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um... I I actually already knew about your incredibly beautiful office as well. You you mentioned it twice right up at the start, but I cycle past it. Um, I know I know I, I obviously you know, know Dunhamby um, uh, um, pretty well for being in the data space and also. Uh, you guys were responsible for the club card, which is a product that I was very familiar with from uh, from my days working the checkouts at Tesco, one of my first jobs. So um, I was I was helping you uh, collect uh, customer data before you knew it, um, but it's been really good. You actually, you, you described me as an expert on data and said, you uh, sorry, on networks, and then and then said you weren't, and then gave a much more eloquent answer than I did. So uh, I think I'd just also say I learned that you were uh, much more humble than you need to be. <laughs> um so yeah, and I'm, I I, uh, I enjoyed hearing uh, more about what you guys are up to, and uh, and I followed you from afar, and I'm pleased to be uh, hearing it all a little bit closer. I do think that you were what very brave to announce just uh, three hours before kickoff that uh, Italy and England were going to meet in the final. We should uh, we should remind the the listeners that we're this is the Tuesday just before it all goes off in the semi. So uh, Jan Luke will either look massively uh, wise or. Uh, <laughs> And, of course, we'll agree we're going to cut the part about the final if we
1: don't win the game, right? Otherwise, (laughs) I'll I'll be blamed.
0: (laughs) Okay, word association round. Now, how this works is I say one word, and you each say the first thing that comes to mind when you hear it. Data.
2: Analytics.
1: Love it. Football. It's coming home.
0: That's three words. Gianluca. (laughs) Final. Entrepreneurs.
1: Challenging. Crazy.
0: So... Thank you to our two guests, Sam and Gianluca, today uh, for their time and uh, for shedding a bit of light into what they're working on, um, the excitement in their lives and their views on everything from entrepreneurship to data, very cheerful topics. And obviously, they are both um, going to be watching the football tonight, and we will see what happens at the end of this. Sam, Gianluca, thank you so much for your time. I hope you both enjoy the podcast when it comes out.